And if you would, take out your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Matthew chapter 2. In in the weeks leading up to Christmas Sunday, we are looking at various ways in Scripture that people respond to the news of the God of the universe taking on flesh and being born as a baby. We're doing that because there's much confusion about how we should respond. In fact, I I spoke about this last week, but many churches have chosen to cancel worship on on Christmas Sunday uh, to allow time at home with family. And while we certainly can understand that, uh, Christmas and every Lord's Day, we'd say, is not primarily about being with family, but primarily about celebrating the incarnation of Christ. And so we're looking to the scriptures to to learn how to celebrate Christ, and particularly the incarnation of Christ. And in our text today, we're going to see three sets of characters, and I want to tell you in advance, two sets of characters serve as a warning of how not to respond to the incarnation. And then the third set of characters will teach us by example of what they did right. Now, before we look to God's Word, let's seek the help of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. God in heaven, we we desperately need your help because there is something in us that can often be callous towards the incarnation. It's it's not as if we we, uh, have antagonism against it, but At times, we may just be ambivalent or a little bit apathetic about it. Perhaps we've heard it so many times that it's just no big deal to us. But, Lord, there's there's been no more important event in the history of the world than the fact that the Lord Jesus became flesh, became man, like us in every way but without sin, lived a perfect life for 33 years, was crucified, dead, buried, and raised again. Lord, this is the epicenter of history. This is the single most hist- uh, important event in the world because, indeed, it's, it's the event for which the world was made. And it's the event for which we were made. And so we pray that you would stir our hearts to worship Christ today and always. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Take out your copy of God's Word. Turn to Matthew 2. If you're using the Bible in your row, it's, you'll find it on page 807. Starting in verse 1, Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men uh, from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. 
After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it had come to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If you and I were to go to downtown Beaufort today and walk along Bay Street and begin asking people at random, what, tell us what you know about the Christmas story, I think it's likely that we would hear from some of these folks about the three kings who traveled from afar, who came from the Orient, following a star to see the newborn Lord Jesus. And some who maybe have been particularly steeped in, in history or maybe even just have read the Christmas cards they've received lately might know that there's a name that's been attributed to these three kings, Caspar and Balthazar and Melchior. Well, there's one problem. If you were listening during the text that I read, the passage I read just a couple minutes ago, almost none of those details actually appear in the text. They might be true, but we we just don't know. Uh, Those details, most of them have arisen over time. And and so if if you came here this morning thinking you know a lot about the story, you may feel by the end of the service that you actually know a lot less about the story than you think you do because the text just simply doesn't tell us as much as we might want to know. You know, what most of us are familiar with is actually the hymn that teaches those things, that it's three kings from the Orient. That was written in 1857 by an Episcopal minister, and it was, it was patterned after an old Armenian folk song from the 600s. And so much of this is just folk history that has arisen through the years, but the scriptures don't attest to it. And so contrary to the song, we don't know that there were three of them. In fact, uh, historically, it's been thought that there were somewhere between two and 12 that came Uh, to see Jesus. Well, how did we come up with the number three? Because they gave three gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. So there may have been three people, but there may have been more givers than that. We we just don't know. Uh, They also weren't kings. If, If you look at the text carefully, all we're told is that wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. That word wise men or magos, it's the root of magi. You've heard it used that way. It's a really broad word that can be used for magician or sorcerer or wise man. And these magi appear to have been experts at studying the sky. And they did indeed see a heavenly body that they didn't recognize, and so they began to consult their books. What does this mean? One scholar says that magi often traveled from from town to town, court to court, Uh, And it was not unusual for them to uh, uh, cover great distances to attend the birth of a king. And and so they likely understood what it was that they were doing, but they themselves don't appear to have been kings. There's also no reason to believe they were from the Orient. That word Orient is a, a largely outdated word for Eastern Asia. But all the text tells us is that they were from the east. And yes, eastern Asia would be east of Jerusalem, certainly. But there's a lot of places to the east. And so where were they from? 
You know, the text doesn't specifically tell us, but there's two cultures from throughout history that we associate magi with or wise men with. One of them was Babylon. So if you remember, Daniel was taken to Babylon and he got a promotion from the king and he was made prefect over the wise men of Babylon. Well, then Babylon was conquered in 539 BC by the Medo-Persians, and they had a priestly class of people known as the Magi, and they were skilled in astronomy. And so typically through the church uh, history, it's been thought that these wise men either came from Babylonia or from Persia. Now, if that's the case, either of those explanations would help us to understand how they knew about the birth of the king of the Jews, because they would have had access to the writings of Daniel and the writings that Daniel would have had, books like possibly Isaiah. And so the wise men are actually, they're not just responding to what they've seen in the sky, but they're, they're responding to what they've likely seen written in the portions of Scripture that they had access to. And, and so really, they're, they're following the Word. You know, what's really should strike us more than the fact that they were from the east or from the orient or any of that stuff that we try to figure out is that they were an early sign that the birth of Christ would be good news not just for the Jews but for Gentiles as well. That is the big deal about them coming from the east is that they weren't from Jerusalem, they weren't from Israel, and that this baby born king of the Jews would also be the savior of the Gentiles as well. What about the star that they followed? You know, there's been all sorts of theorizing about that, that it was Halley's Comet, that it was a supernova, that it was an alignment of the planets. Well, that's not really what's relevant here. What's relevant is God the Father is sovereignly, joyfully shining light onto his Son who came to be the light of the world. He is drawing attention for the worship of his Son. And so these magi these wise men followed the star and you know based on the fact that that after they've come Herod then kills all the two-year-olds it seems that it took them some time to get there and so you notice they didn't come to a stable but they came to a house and so if we were to try to make the song the hymn we three kings more biblically accurate it would we'd have to say we kings of indeterminate number and unknown occupation of orient are not it's going to take off isn't it It's going to be a great hit next Christmas. You're sitting here thinking, Pastor, you've ruined my nativity scene by telling me the wise men didn't come to the manger. You've ruined uh, one of my favorite Christmas carols. What's the point of all this? The point is this, that none of those things are the point. That the point is Jesus Christ. The birth of the Lord Jesus is the point of all this text. And so there's something in us that loves to speculate that goes beyond what God has shown us in Scripture, and we can often miss the point. So what's the point? The point is God is drawing attention and worship to his Son that all might come and praise him as Savior. That's the point of this text That's what the wise men have come to do. They're these wonderful, mysterious character whose chief role in Scripture is to draw attention to Christ. You know, they have the same role you and I do. Our job is to draw attention to Christ. But, of course, that's not how everyone in this text, in this passage, responds, and certainly not how everyone in our world responds. And so I want to highlight three responses 
to the birth of Christ from this text. And I'm indebted to Brian Nygaard for pointing these three out to me. But the first, which we see in Herod, is antagonism. Herod responds to Christ with antagonism. The second, which we see in the scribes and the chief priests, is apathy. And then third, which we see in our wise men, is the response of adoration. So antagonism, apathy, and adoration. We're going to work through each one. So first, in Herod, what we see is antagonism. You know, Herod was an interesting character. He, 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 in the early part of his reign, he was largely successful. He was largely a friend to the Jews. He was the one who was responsible for, for improving the temple. Um, in, it, this would have been the same temple where Jesus would have gone for Passover and for worship. But Herod was also intensely insecure. His title originally was governor, but he petitioned Caesar Augustus to name him king king of the Jews, and his life's ambition really was to, to bring this little, this little buffer state under his control. And as this account picks up, he's getting nearer to death. He's already involved in intrigue with his own family about who's going to assume his throne. And these men, these wise men, show up asking about the birth of the king of the Jews And Herod knows what that means for him. And Herod's thinking, you know, this town ain't big enough for the two of us. And and so what does he do? He's afraid he's going to lose his kingdom. And so he he feigns worship. He says, I want to, you come tell me where you find him so that I can come and worship as well. It's really just a ploy so that he can find the baby and kill him. He's deeply afraid because this baby is a threat to his autonomy, is a threat to his self-rule. I was thinking this week about what, what sometimes this year, time of year we hear called the war on Christmas. And, and it has to do with how our secular world pushes back against, uh, against traditional observance of Christmas. Uh, and so stores won't say things like, like Merry Christmas. I was in a store yesterday and I, I noticed there was a sign for Kwanzaa and a sign for Hanukkah and nothing about Jesus. And that's a rabbit trail I have no desire to go down. But in a real sense, if there is a war... It wasn't so much started by, by a King Herod or by consumers today, businesses today. It's a war that was begun with Christ in his incarnation. See, the baby born in the manger, innocent as can be, is an attack on human autonomy. And Herod understands that. If this baby really is the king of the Jews, then I'm about to be displaced. This, this one's going to be greater than me. I'm going to have to, to submit to him, and I don't, I don't get to be the king anymore. Do you know that that's really the cause of all the world's antagonism to Christ? It's not that the world objects to his teaching, or that they can find flaws in his life, or because he can't bring joy. It's none of those things. It's because when you and I are confronted with Christ, we have to realize that the throne of our lives is not ours to sit on. Uh, Just as, as Herod sort of usurped a throne that was not his, so have you and I through sin. And we want to be the final say in our lives. We, we want uh, to be the kings of our lives, but our, our kingship is not legitimate. And that's where antagonism towards Christ comes from. Not because there's anything wrong with him, but because there's something wrong with us. 
that we want to be the king of our lives. We want to be the God of our lives. And and so you think of Romans chapter 1, where Paul says that man suppresses the truth of of God in unrighteousness. We hold it down because we know that if he's God, then we don't get to be God. And, And this heart ain't big enough for the two of us. One is going to sit on the throne. It's either me or God. And Herod understands that. You know, the whole rest of Herod's life is going to be a a last stand against Jesus. And at every turn, he's defeated. You know, he tells the Magi, go tell me where he is. Go find him. Come back and tell me where he is so that I can worship him. But God foils that plan by telling the Magi in a dream not to return. And he wants to kill the baby, and so God tells Joseph and Mary in, the dream, in a dream to escape to Egypt, where they stayed until Herod died. At every turn, Herod's desire to remain king of his life is foiled by the true king. You know, the, the first coming of Christ, the birth of Christ, guarantees us that there will be a second coming when Christ will return in judgment. And the first time Herod will ever be able to lay eyes on Jesus Christ will be when Jesus comes to judge Herod. And that's true for all who oppose him. You can pretend he doesn't exist. You can try to ignore him. But one day you will stand before him in judgment. And that's Herod's reality. You know, that's a lesson that all of us need to understand that when people seek to oppose Christ, he will ultimately win. We can oppose him, we can try to outsmart him, outmaneuver him, or outrun him. But he will ultimately win, and we will stand before him. And all people will stand before him, either covered in his mercy or covered in the guilt of our sins. But our antagonism towards Christ will ultimately make us the losers. So we've got Herod the antagonist. The story goes on. We see a second way of responding to Christ. Herod wants to to get some advice from his counselors. He calls together the best spiritual advisors. These are men who are trained in the scriptures. They were full of answers, and we see what their response is. It is utter apathy. Look at verse 3. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the priests, chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Now, it's, it, these are people who, who have spent their entire life studying the Jewish scriptures. And if you were to take any one of these, they would know the Jewish scriptures better off the top of their head than Pastor Walton and I in our whole lives. They knew not just the scriptures, they knew synagogue politics. They, they knew how to secure power in, in the ecclesiastical courts. They were morally upstanding, at least outwardly, and they were highly regarded in the world. Look at their response, though. They tell Herod in verses 5 and 6, well, here's what Micah said. And by the way, Pastor Walton will be preaching on this passage this evening, and I'm excited about that. They tell him, here's what Micah said, and they, read, they tell him the prophecy. But notice, not one of them actually travels to go see him. Not one of them asks questions. They seem to just go back to their daily lives. Yeah, oh yes, the baby's been born. He's going to be born in Bethlehem. You see, for these men, they knew a lot about religion. 
but their hearts were, were utterly apathetic towards Christ. Now, what does apathy mean? It, it literally means without feeling. There's, there's no heart involved. Religion for them was about power and politics. We get an interesting little clue here in verse 4, where the text says that Herod, Herod assembled them. And, and the Greek word most literally translated could be he synagogued them. And these were men that were good at playing church. They were good at going through the outward motions. They knew everything there was to know. They had all the answers, but they had no hunger for truth, no desire to worship. Their, their minds are full of answers, but their eyes are covered in scales. And they didn't understand that the sum total of everything they had ever learned about God culminated in this moment, in the incarnation of Christ. And so what do they say? Oh, he's in Bethlehem, go find him. But we're, we're not interested. We've got more important things to deal with. Friends, there is nothing more important to deal with than Jesus Christ and how you respond to him. There are many people who affirm the historic details of Jesus' birth. They may outwardly profess to be Christians, yet never once have they really experienced what it is to come and adore him. They're like the scribes and the Pharisees. Oh, yes, the baby was born, but we've got more important things. We've got work. We've got business. We've got family. We've got sports. We've got our retirement to attend to. In full transparency, I think apathy is the official religion of the South. Most people here in the South do not mind the thought of Jesus. In fact, they like the thought of Jesus. As long as he stays small and remote and distant, as long as he doesn't bother them or ask anything from them or tell them what to believe. And so many ha have developed the skill of sitting under gospel preaching, perhaps outwardly agreeing with it, but in their hearts being utterly unmoved by it all. That's what the scribes and, and the chief priests were doing, hearing the good news week after week, but they were utterly apathetic towards it. Bishop J.C. Ryle gives this warning. The saddest road to hell is the one that runs under the pulpit, past the Bible, and right through the middle of the warnings and gospel promises. You know, if you've ever read through the beginning of the book of Revelation, you see those seven letters to the churches of Asia Minor. And Christ speaks a word to each of the churches, and we need to take away from it that most of those words were words of, of warning and correction. But you remember what he says to the church of Laodicea? He says, you're lukewarm. It's the same thing as apathetic. It's just not stirring anything in you. In a sense there, Jesus is saying, I'd rather you be like Herod, at least have a response, than, oh yes, he was born in Bethlehem. I wonder what Christ would say to the church at First Scots. If we were there listed among the churches of Revelation, 
What would his word be to us? You know, I know that he, if you're here at First Scott's and you take part of the different opportunities of Sunday school and, and prayer meeting and Bible study, as I hope you are, you're probably growing in your knowledge of the word. But, you know, our chief concern is are we growing in passion and love for Christ? And that's really the desire because we see from the scribes and the Pharisees, you can have all sorts of knowledge and it completely unaffect your heart. We need to be on guard against apathy, like the scribes who loved having the right answers, enjoyed theological debate, but they were apathetic. It didn't influence their lives. These are people who would rather hear well said than well done, good and faithful servant. And one of the things to note from the scribes is that apathy will turn into antagonism. If you don't repent, apathy will turn into antagonism eventually because there's only so long you can resist the Lord Jesus who says, come, take up your cross and follow me. There's only so long you can resist that without either coming and following him or crucifying him. You will do one or the other, but apathy will not last forever. You'll either become an antagonist, or like the wise men we'll see in a moment, you will come to adore him. But the antagonist and the apathetic, they both have the same destiny, that whether you oppose Christ or you're just indifferent towards him, the destiny is judgment. That leads to a third group. That's the wise men, the magi, and their response is neither marked by antagonism nor apathy, but adoration. This is the goal of what we do at First Gods, that you would adore the Lord Jesus, that he would captivate your hearts. Twice in this passage, the Magi stress that the reason they've come is to worship. That was the reason for their journey. The reason for their inquiry was to worship Christ. And these are the last people you would expect in this story to be faithful worshipers. They're, they're probably superstitious pagan Gentiles, but they had just enough of the scriptures to have known about the Messiah and to come and find him. Isn't that amazing to think that whereas Herod and the priests and the people who were completely unaware that the most momentous event in the history of the world had just happened in their midst, other than some shepherds and the families of Joseph and Mary, everybody else is completely unaware. And these Gentiles from a faraway land have had it revealed to them. And what do they do? They come to worship, and they are not just going through the motions. They are worshiping with exceedingly great joy, the text tells us. Mega joy, the text tells us. And I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but in the Christmas story, those who are most worshipful are the most joyful. Mary is brimming with joy. She's overflowing with joy, even though her life has completely been train wrecked by God. Every plan she has for herself has been hijacked, and yet she is so ecstatic that the Savior has come. Uh, Simeon, who is in his last days and about to die, is overflowing with joy to see Jesus. 
And we see that here with these wise men. They can't wait to worship Christ. And this has been a a costly trip for them. Think of what this journey would have cost them. And certainly it cost them their time. They had other things going on. They may have had to to leave their their jobs, possibly. They've had to leave all sorts of other plans in order to come. That's certainly costly. Do you know that poll, by the way? Where you think about, you know, I really should spend time in the Word today. Or I really should go to Bible study. I really should witness. I really should serve my neighbor. But, you know, I'm just so busy right now. When we take whatever time we have and we prioritize it for the service of Christ and fellowship with Christ, that is an act of costly worship. We don't know how long their journey was. It really doesn't matter because when someone devotes their life in worship to Christ, they no longer see time as their own. They see that, that their time is a stewardship from God, and they're to use it for Him. Let, let me plead with you. I know that many of us, we take inventory of our lives when, the, uh, when we come to the end of one year and the beginning of the next, and we think about things we want to do differently, and I want to plead with every person in this room to consider your priorities and, and figure out how to make Christ a higher priority than ever before. And if you are thinking, you know, he's already the highest priority in my life. I've already prioritized him as much as I can. You are deluding yourself. All of life is to be used to the glory of Christ, and not one of us has yet done that. And so as you think about the year to come, God, how do I use my time more and more for the glory and worship of Christ? Cost them their comfort. On our Christmas cards, we see, we see the wise men riding on camels. I've never ridden a camel. I suppose they're not very comfortable. It was a long, hot, dirty, sandy journey, and they're showing up into a foreign town with a murderous king who's probably been tracking their every move. It costs them comfort. You know, we, we're a people who love comfort, don't we? We hate awkwardness. I often say that the cardinal sin among people, among millennials today is awkwardness, is uncomfortable conversations. And I think that carries over to all of us. Christ is worth giving up comfort, isn't he? He's worth entering into difficult conversations. He's worth uh, whatever it may cost us to follow him. We must be willing to give up our comfort for him. And then, of course, it costs them their resources. You know, the journey was costly. So were the gifts they brought. You know, that's one thing that that history gets right. It was gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And for about the last 1,700 years, the church has had kind of a standard interpretation of those three things, going all the way back to a, a church father named Origen. Origen didn't get a whole lot of things right, but I think he may have gotten this one right. He says the gold was given because it's a gift appropriate for a king. That's the only gift worthy for a king. It's the medal of kings. And so when gold was presented to Jesus, it acknowledged that he alone has the right to rule. The wise men knew Jesus was the king of kings. 
And then frankincense was a significant gift. It was used in temple worship. It was mixed with oil to anoint the priests of Israel. It was, it was used in the meal offerings of thanksgiving and praise. And so in presenting this gift of frankincense, the wise men are pointing to Jesus as our great high priest, uh, whose whole life would be an acceptable offering to God on our behalf. Myrrh is the gift that would seem the most out of place because one of the main uses for myrrh was embalming. By any human measure, it would be odd, if not offensive, to present an infant with a spice used for embalming. Myrrh was not offensive in this case, nor was it odd. It was a gift of faith. We don't understand all that the wise men knew about Christ's ministry, but if you read the Old Testament, you know that he's a suffering servant who would be pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. And so the little bit they did understand, they seemed to understand this baby was born to die, and so Myrrh recognized and honored his coming sacrifice. You know, these gifts tell us why Christ is so worthy of our worship. Because the same baby born in Bethlehem would one day be lifted up on a cross outside of Jerusalem. And it wasn't for sins that he had done, but for ours. And unlike Herod, who would trample his people underfoot for the sake of his little kingdom, Christ allowed himself to be trampled. He laid down his life in order to bring his people into his great kingdom. That's why Christ is so worthy of our worship, because he laid down his life for ours. You know, if you don't think of yourself being much of a sinner, you'll never really think of Christ as much of a savior. But if you understand how offensive and how destructive sin is, then you realize what Christ has done for you. We'll never follow Christ with a whole heart or give him costly worship until by his grace we see how indebted we are to what he's done for us. Have you ever wondered how the wise men saw the star but nobody else seems to? You know, was it only visible to them, nobody else could see it, or, or did nobody else take notice of it? We don't know. What we do know is that God revealed it to the wise men and everybody else had scales and it would be that way throughout Jesus' life. Some would see it and some would scorn it. And the same is true today. This reminds us God must reveal Christ to us if we're to see him and embrace him. And so of all people, these Gentiles, by the sovereign mercy of God, see that light. But this text also warns us that very religious people, people like you and me, who outwardly seem to have life together, who can talk the talk, can be very blind to spiritual things. It doesn't matter how great the light is if we don't have eyes to see it. Well, how do I know if I've seen that light? Look at verse 11. Going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell fell down and worshipped him. You know, this text teaches us the the test is not, do I have all the answers? 
Do I have all the right Sunday school answers? The test is, have I bowed the knee to Jesus Christ? Have you done that? I know you've sung the song, Oh, come let us adore him with your lips, but have you ever said it with your heart? Have you experienced what it is to see and savor savor and reorient your entire life around the Savior? That's what it is to respond rightly, that my whole life becomes about him. How do we apply this text? First is a very simple point. Always be on guard against speculation and rabbit trails in your study of the word. There are people that absolutely love this, and they can hijack a Bible study in a heartbeat because they want to talk about some obscure thing that happened in history 1,000 years ago or 1,500 years ago or some obscure view that hardly anybody in the history of the church has held. Do you know oftentimes we like going down that rabbit trail so we don't have to focus on things like sin and repentance? We miss the main thing because we go down all these obscure points. I'm stressing this because there's what one pastor called a mentality for the marginal among many. They love to debate marginal peripheral things in Scripture, and it has no bearing on how they live. It becomes sort of a game to get the right answers. You know, you can get all the answers right and totally miss the point, can't you? The scribes had that. There are some things we're just not made to understand. There are secret things that belong to the Lord. So so what should we do? We should focus on the things that have been revealed to us. We don't worry about speculation. As Alistair Begg says, the main things are the plain things, and the plain things are the main things. We need to be careful not to spend our lives speculating and rather focus on what God has shown us in the Word. Second, let me speak to the children here. At Christmas, children, we, of course, celebrate the birth of Christ. And what do we do for birthdays, children? We, we give people birthday presents. These wise men did that for Jesus. They gave him what they were able to. Children, there are many things that God has given you that you can give back to him. It may be your gifts, the abilities that you have, things that nobody else can do, or friendships that nobody else has. But children, no matter how old you are, you have things in your life that you can offer to Jesus as a gift to celebrate him. Finally, some of you are in a position of knowing, you know, I am not really prioritizing Christ in my life. But I'm a little bit worried about what might happen if I make changes. My spouse may get upset. I may have to quit my job. Maybe my job's asking me to do something immoral or it's asking me to work so much that I can't be part of, of corporate worship. You wonder how friends might respond, how your parents might respond. If you begin to live more wholeheartedly for Christ, I want you to see how God protects those who are doing what he has called them to do. It was a very dangerous thing for the wise men to ignore Herod's command. Hey, when you find that baby, come tell me so I can worship him. They have a dream telling them not to go back, and they ignored Herod's command. Now, Herod was powerful, and if he had wanted to, he could have tracked them down and killed them. He may have tried. We don't know, but we know that God protected them. If there is any part of you that is worried of what it may cost you 
to follow Christ more wholeheartedly, you're worried about the wrong things. And trust God and leave the details to him. Uh, he'll take care of it. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. He says, and all these things will be added to you. Do not worry what it may cost you to follow Jesus, but you certainly must worry about what it'll cost you not to. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, whether they were kings or magicians or astrologers, whether they were two or three or twelve, it makes no, no difference. The Magi were wise men, and they show us the way of true wisdom because they lead us to you. You, Lord Jesus, are our wisdom from God, our, our righteousness, our sanctification, and our redemption. And we praise you and bless you, and indeed, we adore you for your unparalleled grace, your measureless generosity, your liberating provision for us. From cradle to cross, from resurrection to return, you alone are worthy of everything we have and everything we are. Indeed, Lord, we see the magi who were seeking you, but we understand the reality that you first were seeking them. And the same is true for us, that if we belong to you, then it's because you first sought us. We pray that the gospel would continue to do its work in our hearts, that we may bow more quickly, that we may be more lowly and with more joy than ever before you, our great King and merciful Lord. Open the eyes of our hearts even wider to behold the great hope to which you've called us in the gospel. We pray all this in the matchless name of Jesus, our Lord.